Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I am back in Accra. Hooray! It's just so wonderful to be back in my other home. I am so happy to be feeling the sun rays every day, feeling the sea breeze every day, and just being a little bit more free in my garden here. And I'm happy to kick off my season, my stint in Ghana with a wonderful interview with a trailblazer in the cannabis industry. He is Nana Kweku Ajebang. He is the founder and president of Empire Association of Africa. He is the CEO of Empire Agri Ghana Limited, and we're just happy to have him here. I'm back in Ghana. I'm so happy. Uh, the sun is kissing me lovely and the sea breezes are giving me hugs. We're still in some slight lockdown, but I'm back. And I'm happy to open up my season here in Ghana with a very interesting gentleman. He is the founder and president of Empire Association of Africa. He is the CEO of Empire Agri Ghana Limited. And his name is Nana Kweku Ajigman. Nana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. So tell us more about where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft? Well, I'm a Ghanaian. I live in Ghana. I'm from the Shanti region, Ghana, Asante Mangpong, we say. And I've been doing things there, but the focus... Obviously, everybody migrates to Accra to do things, you know, because it is the capital. And I've, I've ended up in Accra uh, for all my sins, and I'm working fervently on a number of different projects. The Empire Association of Ghana and the Empire Association of Africa are two massive projects that are really dear to my heart, and I'm very passionate about them. The Empire Association of Ghana has been working with government agencies. It's been working with the government, especially on the Parliamentary Select Committee, where we've been interrogating the old 1992 PNDC law on cannabis and drugs. We have been looking at making changes to the law in order to facilitate the cultivation of cannabis sativa L, which is industrial hemp for industrial purposes and for medical purposes. We've been working to have it all decriminalized. Essentially, the Empire Association of Ghana, we're all about the full legalization of cannabis and all its different strains. But I think at some point it became clear to us that government had a different agenda. And as we were moving closer to a general election, they were coming, they were becoming a bit wary about propagating the full legalization of cannabis, because culturally, there are a lot of stigmas about cannabis that we promote, uh, unwittingly and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And what it has meant is that in terms of being edified about what cannabis is and the benefits of cannabis, that education has been stagnant. Mm -hmm. And so we are stuck 
in our own cultural ways of giving it certain names that demonize it and that classify it as a very, very bad thing that everybody should stay away from. And to the point where if we are able to identify people who are participating in it, then they are also demonized. They are also seen as people that no one should have any contact with because those people are very bad people. And so we're caught in that rut at the moment. And the Empire Association of Ghana is trying to dig people out of that by educating them. We call it hemp-ducating. So we're trying to hemp-ducate people out of that rut so that they're able to view cannabis in a much more positive light. Unfortunately for us, we have taken the baton from people like, I think his name is Harry Anslinger, and he was the big boss of the Drug Enforcement Agency back in the United States. At one huge convention, he declared that when the Negro participates in cannabis, it somehow attracts the white women to them, Mm -hmm. and they end up having sex with the white women, and this was very bad. Right. And he also said that when the Negro participates in the use of cannabis, they could even kill themselves. They could even be a danger to themselves, not only a danger to everyone else. And I think when he gave that speech, he also included Mexicans mm-hmm. in it as well. Yep. And in so doing, I think we've seen years down the line how many innocent African-Americans have been murdered at the hands of the police because they may have had a joint or two or a little stash of cannabis, also known as marijuana. It's still happening today. And that is despite the fact that in the Americas, it's quite liberal now. And they've done, you know, while they were chasing us around with batons and guns and what have you to eliminate us because we had a small stash or a couple of joints, Their scientists have been researching the health benefits. They've been looking at the environmental benefits. And they've been reaping the economical benefits as well, as state by state legitimizes the cultivation and the processing, the manufacturing of goods that are all cannabis-based. So here in Ghana, we've taken the baton from the Americas, even though they're now doing much more positive things with cannabis, and we're running with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've added it to our own cultural stigmatization, and we've said, well, yes, you know, the white man has said this is very bad, and we know it's very bad because we have our own stuff with it, and now we're running that race, a race that has ended a long time ago with the legalization of cannabis globally Mm -hmm. in many first world countries. So the education is quite essential because we have health practitioners who go around and continue with the demonizing of of cannabis by saying it will cause you to become mad and mentally unstable and all different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And they've been propagating this at will and only really being challenged by us because 
no one really understands and has taken the time to understand what cannabis is all about. So the education is very important and we continue with that. And to a certain extent, we've had some success because, you know, when we realized that government was saying, well, they couldn't go through with the full legalization because of our strong cultural stigma and the fact that we've taken the baton from the Americas as well, they believe that it would upset the voting apple cart. And 80% of the voters here are Christians. And the majority of them are up in arms, 20% are Muslims. And so they, in their infinite wisdom, believe that the best thing to do was to decriminalize hemp because we could justify that much more easier because industrial hemp has a THC content of Mm 0.3, whereas the regular cannabis you can get THC content up to 30%. Mm -hmm. And the THC content I talk about is the tetrahydrocannabidiol. And when that is ingested, there's no two ways about it. It does leave the person who has ingested it feeling much better (laughs) than they did before. And that's the truth of the matter. People like to use the words high and all that kind of stuff. But I would like to say that people feel much better when they actually participate in consuming regular cannabis. And it's no secret that doctors in first world countries actually prescribe cannabis to be consumed through smoke for Parkinson's disease, for Alzheimer's disease, and generally for degenerative diseases that affect the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's no secret that when these patients consume cannabis in that way, that it aids their recovery. So that is something that, that people should know. So we've been involved working with the government agencies, working with the Narcotics Control Commission, working with Parliament, and working alongside other civil society organizations trying to ensure that we can get full legalization. As it stands now, we have decriminalization of industrial hemp, Mm -hmm. which as it stands, we are waiting for the regulations to go through parliament. That is the legislative instrument that has been prepared. There was a bottleneck because politically, the MPs and parliament were all thinking about the election. So we had to take a break for the election. Mm -hmm. The election has come and gone. Then you had to wait another month for the signing in, which is January the 7th. Mm -hmm. And this time round, significantly, we've had a lot of MPs, over 100, in fact, that are totally new to the system. Mm. And so that it takes a little bit of time to get them orientated and how things go. Then on top of that, you've got the vetting for the ministerial appointments. Mm -hmm. So that's going on. And there's other things going on. But what is is going to cause a significant delay is the fact that several of the MPs have Mm COVID-19. Many of the staff have Mm COVID-19. And the Speaker of the House has said that the House can only sit twice a week. Now, the House was already under some stringent rules insofar as the Speaker of the House said, 
but only a third of the parliamentarians can be in the chamber at any one time. And the other parliamentarians who are not in the chamber should virtually connect with what is going on. So that was already in force. And now we have a situation where they can only sit twice a week. Mm -hmm. Now, with all that needs to take place, I can see that there will be a delay when Parliament considers the legislative instrument. We at Empire Association of Ghana, HAG, we are concerned because the legislative instrument and most legislative instruments I'm informed only have a life expectancy of a year. And so the year starts from the day that the president assented to the bill becoming a law, and that was May the 11th. Of last um, year. Of last year. Mm -hmm. That was on the anniversary of Bob Marley, Bob Marley's demise, I think. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at is that around about May the 10th, the 11th, that life of the legislative instrument will be extinguished. And so what we have to do is ensure that we get the legislative instrument up in front of Parliament, laid on the floor of Parliament. There's a requirement of 21 days. And once we can do that, the legislative instrument will go through right now. Mm -hmm. If we fail in doing that, then there's a lot of polytricking and administrative gymnastics before we can get that back on the table. And we don't want to go through that. Right, so of course, of course. we're working fervently to ensure that it will get up there well before May the 11th. Sure, sure. So you have this instrument. How did this come about? Hempfire has been around for, I think, about 10 years now. No, it's not that long. We're young. Okay. We're young. I think first and foremost, I was working with the... Rastafarian Council of Ghana, and they were pushing the agenda. I was actively working with them, pushing the agenda. But I think they peaked, to be perfectly honest Mm -hmm. with you. The Rastafarian Council of Ghana, they peaked, and they weren't able to progress to the next level. Mm -hmm. And it was from that that the Empire Association of Ghana was born, because they couldn't move any further. And in saying that, I'm talking about the engagement that was required with stakeholders who were in positions of power mm-hmm. was some was the next step. Right. And they weren't able to take that step. Right. And so I registered the association mm-hmm. and started working with like-minded people who joined me in the association sure. to push that agenda of advocacy further. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, eventually the Rastafarian Council of Ghana just slipped away into oblivion. Oh, okay. So yes. they're no longer active. No, they're not active at okay. all. They're okay. not active at all. Which is the evolution of lobbying and advocacy organizations in general. You know, they breed life into other follow-on, Absolutely. more effective organizations. So what is your background? How did you, we can hear a bit of your English being a little bit more um, European. Oh, just a bit. You can only hear just a bit. (laughs) Just a bit. Well, I'm grateful you can only hear just a bit. Uh I went to school in the United Kingdom. In fact, I finished the majority of my education there for my sins. Okay. And so having trained there, I think that accounts for the accent that that I can't shake. Um, (laughs) Even when I'm speaking tree, 
If I, it's, it's brothelized. <laughs> I've been told many a time it's brothel. Uh-huh. So I was over there. I've worked in local government. I've worked with central government. I've For the UK? In the UK, in the UK. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I worked in centralised and decentralising decentralised housing departments. Mm-hmm. I was the deputy housing office manager in a decentralised housing department. And I've done lots of work in race and equality and things like that. So I gained a lot of valuable experience while working with local government and central government to the point where I set up my own housing business called Bala Developments. Bala? Bala Developments. Okay, this was in the UK? In the UK. Okay. We were refurbishing properties, reconstructing properties, and laying it back out to people, selling it back out to people. You know, it was property development. And sure. That went quite good. In fact, that assisted in propelling me home from the profits, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been home 25 years now. It's my 26th year okay. back home. So, and I'm enjoying it. There's yeah. no place better like home. You know, <laughs> than home. No place. Yeah, quite interesting. So you came back, you established. And so where does your passion for cannabis and hemp originate? How did you come to the plant? How did you familiarize yourself with the plant and and all that is? Well, I think, as you can see, I've got dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. So although I'm not uh, a practicing Rastafarian now, I'm actually uh, a Muslim. Mm -hmm. Back in the day when I was much younger, I was a Rastafarian. And of course, the Rastafarian community use cannabis when we congregate together for religious purposes. So... That was how I first came into contact with cannabis. And I'd used it considerably for at least a decade or more Mm -hmm. when it came to those kind of religious practices. So I'm very well aware of its THC potency. Sure. I've been under its spell, (laughs) so to speak, you know, from time to time. But I've never experienced psychosis Mm -hmm. or any of those things. I think as it's something that's not consumed for one to derive pleasure, quote unquote, I've been able to control that feeling and direct it at whatever it is I was doing. So I would have greater focus and that would lead to greater understanding too. I've never had any situation where I've consumed cannabis where It has taken me outside of myself where I've lost control. I've never, ever experienced that at all. And at that time, whilst we all said that the herb was the healing of the nation, at that point in time, I never really understood what that meant insofar as I didn't know that this herb was a miracle herb, Mm -hmm. that it could heal nations. Mm -hmm. I didn't know at all. Mm -hmm. It was just a slogan that we used at the time. It's like 20, 30 years later. I now really understand the true meaning Mm -hmm. of the herb being the healing of the nation. But that's, you know, that's how I came across it. That's how I used it. I'm now teetotal. So participating with that is no more. But not in that form anyway. Sure. Yeah. But I do eat it. I mm-hmm. do drink it. 
Yeah. I do consume it in my food. Mm-hmm. I take the oil mm-hmm. drops under my tongue. Mm-hmm. I use it to brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and many uses. There's many uses. Yes. I use yes. it to wash my hair. Which shampoo. Which are the things that we are, I guess, overlooked because of the recreational Aspect. aspects yeah. of it, right? Yeah. And so, which leads me to. First, I'll take a step back and ask you. So you've had these experiences with your Rastafarian community living in the UK. I want to take a step and ask you global speak. So this is my global speak question. And this is when we want to know, what do you hear? I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Well, I'd have to say it's, this is Ghana. <laughs> it be Ghana. Okay, it's true. You know, and yeah. when I hear that phrase, I tell you what it invokes. It invokes that everything is possible mm. thinking inside mm-hmm. of me. Mm. Because okay. essentially, when someone says, oh, you be Ghana, it's like the connotations of it are all negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes something may happen that shouldn't happen that way. And we all know it shouldn't happen that way, mm-hmm. but it does. Mm-hmm. And so someone says, well, you've got to. But when I look at that phrase and I turn it around positively, it makes me believe that there's nothing that is impossible in this world for us to achieve. Uh-huh. That's what it makes me think. And, and, and I relate that to looking at our people, recognizing that we're in dire need of a thriving economy. We're in dire need of a country that can really inhale and exhale because we can't at the moment. We're constricted by so many loans. We're constricted by corruption in our politics and our governance of the country. And it's from the top and it goes all the way down. And when you have these type of institutional idiosyncrasies, it can lead to a paralysis Mm -hmm. of your country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know if you're paralyzed, you can't do anything for yourself. When I look at the people, our people, there is that paralysis is there. But amidst this paralysis and the chaos that engulfs us, everything still remains possible. Everything still remains possible. When you look at somebody and they're in the worst position possible and they've got a smile on their face, they probably don't know what they're going to eat today or what's going to happen today, but they're happy. Sure. You know, they're happy. And because they feel this happiness within them, even though they don't know where that crumb is going to come from, they are confident they're going to get that crumb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that phrase, I've turned it around because I've gone through certain experiences here in Ghana where basically that's supposed to be the end of the road. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Exactly. But it hasn't been. Sure, sure. <laughs> and the reason it hasn't been is because Ibigano. <laughs> you see? Yeah, which is very interesting because to get to the point where Ghana has legislation in place, to legalize industrial hemp, Mm. which is, again, akin to our Western friends. And this is what's great about where we are is that this is a national policy as compared to the U.S., because what we have 
that is problematic in the U.S. is that they're very different state laws. Mm. So then banking mm. becomes an issue. Transport becomes an issue. Everything about the industry becomes hindered by these other linkages. So we have the opportunity to build the infrastructure for an industry that is already actually potentially thriving, right? Because we already do have industrial production of hemp. You know, I've heard stories about the women who are farming in the Volta region and the Eastern region, and Mm -hmm. this is what they do. And obviously, it may not be the sativa, cannabis sativa L that they're cultivating now, but it's not that difficult for them to now get the seeds to be doing the production that will lead into this new economic Mm -hmm. livelihood for them. So in saying this, what do you think were the key components of actually lobbying this Ghanaian culture to realize? And what do you think will sustain it? Because when I hear that it has to be signed off and I think about all the things that go into actually putting policy into practice, because that's my background as well. So how do we have these policies and they just flop because we don't have proper implementation, right? So what are the what are the, the things that the parliament is going to be deciding on to make sure that there's equitable access to seeds, equitable access to research, equitable access to all those things that are the building blocks of a empire. Well, I mean, that's a multifaceted question yeah, that I'll still I try to answer. <laughs> I mean, let me start with those people who cultivate illegally. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of them are registered with us. We know who they are. We sure. know where they are across the country. And we understand the reason why they are cultivating. We understand because at the end of the day, they've got families to feed and they've got the same type of social conditions that we have to live under, they have to live under. Mm -hmm. And by and large, the cultivation of marijuana has been something that has been going on across Africa for years and years and years. Decades. Decades. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that has cropped up today, as people would like others to believe. Mm -hmm. This is an industry that's been handed down and handed Mm -hmm. down and handed down. Mm -hmm. When we see the young men and women participating in it now, we must know and recognize that it's been handed down from great grandfathers or great, great grandfathers Mm -hmm. now to them. This is what they know. This is what they do. And they've been selling it to the distribution has been to other countries Mm -hmm. on the continent. Mm -hmm. And everybody's a part of that value chain, whether we like it or not. The police are involved, the narcotics are involved, Mm -hmm. the customs are involved. Everybody's involved. Everybody's involved. Mm -hmm. And at the, the end of the day, whether we like it or not, it's important that everybody is involved because everybody earns a living in some way from what is going on. I mean, you can grow hundreds of acres of marijuana. Who is going to prepare it? Mm -hmm. You go back to the women who will sit there and pick all the buds Mm -hmm. and do all this. And, you know, it gives lots of people work. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Gives lots of people who would otherwise be sitting there, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for something to fall from the sky. It gives them employment, gainful employment. Mm -hmm. Fine, it's illegal, and we will get around to 
getting the full legalization anyway because we're going to work on it. Mm-hmm. But let's just understand the economy. Yes. The economics of it all and how important it is because that money that they make is still put back into, into our economy. Right, right, you know. Right. So if it, you were to quantify the contribution to the economies of these, what would you say that the value of the industry is now? The value of the industry here in Ghana, it's certainly around 10 million. Okay. And that's a conservative figure. That is, I would say. That's a, mm-hmm. certainly around 10 million, mm-hmm. easily, mm-hmm. as a baseline. That's our sure. starting point. Sure, And part of that is because it's not legal. So yeah, you can't of course. capture all of you it. Cannot. But, okay. You cannot. But projection-wise, so in working on the legislation, obviously there is some kind of projection because there's some kind of tax receipts that the parliament or the government is expecting. What would they quantify or what has it been quantified as? Well, the tax, because it's, it's agriculture, is 3%. Okay. Yeah, because everyone's leaving the interlands to come come to town. Got so it. they provide an incentive and say that if yeah. you stay there and mm-hmm. go into agriculture, whatever it is you're growing, it'll be 3%. Okay. And that will be the same for the hemp. Okay. You know, that's, that's not going to change. Not yet. Sure. When government the sees volume, the numbers, yeah, yeah, then they will change it. And they're right to do so. Sure. And I'm... I wouldn't complain against it because I think that it's such a lucrative mm-hmm. industry mm-hmm. that you're going to make your money anyway. Yeah. But uh, so that's one part of your question. I hope I, I, mm-hmm. What was the other bit? Because so, it was quite long, actually. It was, I know. <laughs> I get into these thought processes and I, I see the evolution of it coming full circle. So you've, you've answered the part about the economics of the levels, right? Yeah, yeah. So inside of the legislation, what are the terms and conditions? Okay. What, are, what are we doing? No, well, I think what we're looking at, I mean, I, I don't think there can be too stringent terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is that you know, farmers need to have build business plans. They need to have registered companies. Mm-hmm. Farmers need to be found. You okay. know, we need to be able to find you. Sure. And so you've got to be able to set everything out on paper to show how viable your business is going to be mm-hmm. with whatever acreage you're going to use. And I think that's a standard procedure. Mm-hmm. Other than that, inside the regulation rule, just specify how many types of licenses there are and what criteria it is one would use to determine which type of license you're applying for. Mm -hmm. And you've got to determine that because you've got, you spoke about transport being difficult in the USA. Mm -hmm. It's because of the different laws in the various states. But here, as you say, with one law, a national law, you can have a transport license you can have research and development license. Right. You can have a processing license. Okay. You can have a manufacturing license. You can have a cultivating and export license mm-hmm. and, and various other licenses. Okay. You see, so the vast majority of us would come in at the cultivation and export mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. because you need money to process. You yes. need money to manufacture. Right. You need money to conduct research and development. Mm-hmm. So how will you get the money? The first thing is you should start cultivating. And once you start cultivating, then you will start earning some money. And then you can decide down the road which part of the value chain you decide to get involved with and take it from there. Because with us, 
Empire Agri Ghana Limited, we signed an off-takers contract agreement well over a year ago Mm -hmm. with a company based in Portugal and Germany. So we have an inroad into the European Hemp Association and we also have windows of opportunities with the United States of America and Canada. Mm -hmm. And so we have been offered a situation whereby we've offered this to all those who registered to us, is that where someone wishes to cultivate on 35 acres, you can produce 25,000 kilos of hemp. And for that, we will pay you 520,000 US dollars. Now, if you step up and you have a land space of 60 acres, you'll cultivate 50,000 kilos and you'll be paid a million for that. Mm -hmm. If you move up again and you have 90 acres, you can cultivate and harvest 75,000 kilos, you'll be paid 1.5 million. And if you have 130 acres and you want to supply 100,000 kilos, then you'll be paid 2.4 million US dollars. And this was a contract we signed back in December in 2019. And that contract still stands despite economic depression, despite COVID, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing that has stood the test of time in terms of its unit price has been cannabis. Mm -hmm. It's been cannabis. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is turn everybody who participates with us into millionaires. Because say, for example, you're on contract one, whereby you receive 520,000 US dollars. You receive it every time you harvest. Mm -hmm. And here in Ghana, we can harvest a minimum of three times a year, a maximum of four. So if you're just doing contract one, what you're looking at is that you can earn 1.5 million US dollars within the period of one year. Sure. Yeah. So let's say you do that for two years. That's 3 million US dollars. Mm-hmm. You minus 3% tax, minus, let's say, 250,000 US dollars for every time you cultivated. Let's say that's your expenditure. Yeah. That's 750,000. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at 2.25 million. over a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So that gives you the ability to participate in any way you wish to participate in terms of the value chain. It can be CBD oil. It can be plastics. Mm -hmm. It can be hemp cream. Mm -hmm. It can be the shampoo. It can be the soap. It can be the toothpaste. It can be so many different things. You know, and I'm confident that what we will end up doing is producing a specific brand of CBD oil that you can only get from Ghana because we want to establish a laboratory here. Of course. And then you're looking at the genetics of the whole thing. Right. Because what we're clear about is that CBD does have anti-inflammatory properties. Mm -hmm. It's a pain reliever. Mm -hmm. It's a sedative. It's so many different things. And we know that we can create between five and 10 different strains that deal with different afflictions, if you like, different ailments. 
that we can push out from Ghana that you can't replicate unless we tell you what the combination is. Got it. In terms of the compounds. Sure. From the... From the seed to plant. From, yes. Yeah. That's going to do it for part one of my conversation with Nana. Be sure to join us next week for part two. You won't want to miss it. He'll continue with his conversation about the legislation of the cannabis law or hemp law in Ghana. And until then, you can catch us every Tuesday with the new live episode at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. So, as always, bye for now.